Open up to Exodus chapter, uh, chapter 9. That's where we find ourselves. If I hadn't, haven't had the, the pleasure yet, my name's Tom. I do hope to get to see your, your faces afterwards and get to meet you a bit more. If, uh, if you are new, uh, please make the effort. It is, it is easy as the church grows and uh, new people continue to come and the lost continue to be saved. It is easy for, for people to sort of come in, stay a while and, and be but not missed. Lots of people say g'day, but the elders struggle to sort of break through the crowds and, and give a welcome. So please, if you're new, come and grab us and say your g'day. So I've been here this many times. Here's, here's what I'm thinking we'd love to just get to know you and tell you a little bit more about our church or of course if you're unsaved please please feel that at every moment at any day the job of the elders the reason we live is to be able to present Christ to sinners never feel that we are too busy or doing other things that you might come and and present a, a need of your soul to us please please avail yourself and do so but this morning we're in if uh, not Ephesians Exodus chapter 9 and uh, where we are is this is now the third sermon that we're we're pulling apart and we're looking at what God is doing to the Egyptians and their gods through the workings of the plague. So we've said it's, it's kind of broken up into three, three themes and three cycles. Uh, uh, there was the, the plagues against the Nile. And then there was the plagues against the land itself. You can sort of picture the, the plague of God growing out from that central artery, the, the Nile. It was the Nile that was cursed. And then the land itself we saw last week. And today, we're going to see that the gods of the sky, the Egyptian gods of the, of the sky and the storm and the atmosphere, they are now the gods that God contends with and seeks to punish and, and put to shame. And it's a, it's a powerful and glorious thing. We are going to be asking the question, why? What is the purpose? And instead of just going line by line and day by day through this section of, of the story, we, we will uh, cover it all. But, but instead of just doing the storyline today, we're going to uh, uh, go through it as we ask these four questions, uh, or the four answers to the one question, why the plagues? Well, why, why didn't God just do an old Sodom and Gomorrah move like back in Genesis 19, rain down a brims, uh, brimstone and fire and burn up the city and then there go the... Why didn't he just do a, a Philip move? You remember in Acts when God just zipped, literally teleported Philip from one place to another? Why didn't he just do that with the entire Israelite cohort? And, and the reason is, is, as we're seeing, that, that there's more going on here than just God trying to get his people out of, out of Egypt. In fact, what is happening is that first of all, we're going to see God is punishing Pharaoh for his hard-heartedness against God and his mistreatment and affliction of the Israelites. That's, that's part of what is going on here is that Pharaoh is being punished for his sins. And then secondly, we're going to see that the Egyptians themselves are being, being punished for their idolatry. That's, that's very much a part of the storyline. And thirdly, it's going to be that God is systematically, thoroughly, in front of all people, Jews and Egyptians, he is putting to open shame the Egyptian gods so that neither the Jew nor the Egyptian have any reason to actually think that they have power to save from Yahweh. And then fourthly, we're going to ask the question, uh, or we're going to answer it by knowing that the purpose of the plagues is also evangelistic for a, for a future legacy of gospel preaching. And we will look at that as we go. Turn, uh, look now in chapter 9, verse 13, and there will be some sections I skip simply because this section... We're going to read right to the end of chapter 10, and this section has two of the largest plague accounts that there are. So please, uh, uh, please do follow along in your Bible, get, get, get imaginary and picture all of this with us today. Verse 13, hear now the word of the one true God. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. He said, I've been holding back this whole time. This is child's play so far, Pharaoh. But for this purpose, I have raised you up 
to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Verse 17. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand towards heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant in the field in the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his staff towards heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail. Did he mention the hail? such as never has been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and, have, and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, how long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your land, into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and on all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day that they came on earth to that they came on this earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh, verse 12 of chapter 10. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. And so he stretched out his hand over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land and on that day and for all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up on the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been nor ever will be again. Verse 21 of chapter 10. <clears throat> then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand towards heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and there was pitch darkness all in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord, your little ones also may go with you. Only leave behind your flocks and your herds. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day that you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face Again, may God bless the reading of his own inerrant word in our midst this morning. Amen. We've asked the question, 
before our lengthy reading, what is the purpose of the plagues? And our first answer this morning has to do with the fact that God is punishing Pharaoh and the, Egyptian, uh, and the Egyptians with him for their mistreatment of the Jews and their sin against God. We see this in chapter 9, verse 17. Look there. God explicitly says, as he's, as he's rebuking, Pharaoh, he tells him what it is that is, that is uh, uh, stoking up God's rage. And he says in verse 17, You are exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Or look in chapter 10, verse 3. God says, Through Moses and Aaron, starting with the quotation, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. So, so God's intent here in all of the plagues and in all of the punishments is to not simply teach Pharaoh a lesson. I think that is to put it too simply because while he teaches him, he also hardens his heart. God, God rem- keeps Pharaoh in this unrepentant state so that as the, 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 the sin piles up, so also God pours out his punishment and, and he does not give to him the grace of, of a new heart. He does not give to him the gracious gift of being humbled. He, he keeps him in the center of the ring so that he continue to inflict Pharaoh with the strikes and the blows of punishment against him for his sin. That is why he sends the hail as a punishment, to take away much of the, the crop and the, and the people. That is why he sends the locusts to, to eat the rest of the food. That is why he sends the darkness, to punish and make Pharaoh suffer. Look at, look at verse, chap, uh, chapter 9, verse 13 and 14, where God says to me, Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time, I will send all of my plagues on you yourself. That should be translated on your own heart. It's getting extremely personal. And on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Verse 15, for by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people. It's a little bit funny, isn't it? Walking up to a bloodied, incapacitated, not able to breathe, comatose Pharaoh with all of his gods laying around and entirely beaten and, and bleeding to death and, and God just walking in, polishing his, his knuckles and saying, are, are we going to start the fight? Are you aware of what I could have done? To, I could have really hurt you, you know. You know I, could have, I could have got angry just then, but instead I, I, I just flint. I, I, just, I just gave you a backhand. That's all. It was just, it was just a little flick. God's saying that, that at any point, this is, this is the mercy of, of God. If at any point you feel like, how, how is this fair? How is this merciful that the immortal being of all aseity and eternality holds this mortal in the ring and, and keeps his heart hardened? How is that fair? You want fair? You get immediate death of every individual the first time you ever sin in utter destruction and torment. That's what is fair. These mercies... We may as well call them. The mercies of God upon Egypt. The the plagues are less than he deserves. The plagues are less than any one of us deserve. This is the reality of the infinite value or devalue of our sin. There There is no finite God to sin against, so there is no finite sin. There is no, there is no weak or, or time-bound God to sin against, so there is no such thing as, as a punishment that is not infinite and well-deserved. So don't, don't, get, don't start asking questions of fair for Pharaoh here. Don't, don't start asking why, why God would be, would be so strong and so mighty and such a bully against him. No, no, this is a man who has enslaved, afflicted, hardened his heart against God and his people, who has continued to exalt himself against God, refused the rebuke of God, never taken God on the chance of his mercies, pretended to repent and then turned back, lied to God's prophet Moses himself, He is infinitely worthy of all the things that are going on here, as are each one of us. You read read the plague accounts, and you place yourself in with Pharaoh, in his shoes, and you realize what, what you do to God outside of Jesus Christ. 
how much rage that your sin has stoked in God's heart since the day that you were born and you began to break his laws. Since the day that you started being able to make decisions, you've been making decisions against God's law, against his word, against the gospel, against your conscience. Every one of us deserves what Pharaoh is here receiving. It has been a punishment against Pharaoh for all of his sins. But look at verse Look at verse. Uh, uh, Towards 19, we see that hail comes as a punishment, and yet there's this unique thing about this plague. There's this unique thing about this plague that is not repeated until the last plague at Passover. And this plague, not only is there a warning, sometimes, sometimes Pharaoh uh, uh, doesn't get warned by Moses. Moses just, just starts the next plague and, and the next round is going. Some, most of the time, Moses is commanded to go to Pharaoh and warn him and give him a chance to repent. But this is different. In this plague of the hail, God actually says through Moses, not only am I afflicting you, not only am I warning you and offering you a chance to let them go, but also... Even in the midst of the plague, there will be an opportunity for refuge. There will be an opportunity for you, if you hear my word, to take safety and actually be saved from the wrath that is being poured out. Look at verse 19. He says, go. In fact, it's a command. God here is commanding the Egyptians and Pharaoh to make good on the promise of God in mercy. God God is not a belligerent, uh, resistant, reluctant God to give mercy. This is a command. Please, go. no, sorry, no please, no please from the, from the king of glory. A command, go, get your livestock, bring them in, get your men, bring them in, get yourself, get under the roof, save yourself from the wrath that is about to be poured down. Verse 19, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought in and is not brought home, will die when the hail falls on them. This makes the punishment all the more fitting. Anybody who dies, anybody whose livestock die, did so not just because of their sin against God, not just because of their sin against the Jews, not just because a plague was coming on them as a nation, but because in the midst of a warning, they actively rejected the gospel message for refuge. This makes this this next more severe punishment, as we've seen, each, each plague is intensifying in its, in its punishment and in its severity. Yet this one, even in the midst of the severity, has, a, war- has a, a possibility of refuge. Look at the effects of it that we read before in verse 23. Moses stretched out his hand towards heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire ran down to the earth. I love, I love that imagery. Fire stored up in heaven, sprinted to the earth. We call that lightning. I, from now on, am going to call it fire running down. That's, that's way cooler. Fire is running down from heaven to earth. We should not see, I, I do not believe, any a, a literal uh, flaming tongues of fire that we see later on in the book of Exodus. But at this point, uh, the, the, the alternate uh, words that is also used is lightning. So, so of course, uh, it, is, it is lightning used in the, it is fire flashing continually. Strong, uh, 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 sharp, bold, extremely sized lightning bolts are coming down. Of course, striking fire where they, where they, where they hit. Look at verse 24. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. This is, this is an amazing scene. It, it is not just uh, uh, the, these golf ball hails that sometimes we get in Queensland. I, I remember back when, we, when I was uh, a couple of years back, it was in the midst of COVID at some time, I don't remember when, but in Springfield it was struck especially hard. I'm, a, I'm an Ipswich guy living, I'm a Logan guy with my heart, um, uh, but, but I live in Ipswich. I, that's just an apology to any of you guys who are Easters and Loganers and feel like I'm not one of you, whatever. In Ipswich, there was, it was struck specifically hard, so, so God agrees with you and he struck down the Ipswich people and these these hail balls were enormous my suburb especially was struck particularly hard you love this my street saw almost no hail in the land of Goshen there was 
There was no one struck. But, but I had friends, and it was all over social media. I drove a couple of streets away, and there was some. And, and there was people who they were taking videos. These hail balls fell so hard, so fast, so large, it went through the tiled ceiling, through the, sorry, through the roof, into the ceiling, through the ceiling plasterboard, through a wooden table, and smashed the tiles beneath the table. That's how, this is Queensland. This is not, as far as I could tell, a biblical f- prophecy being fulfilled. This is, this is how destructive hail can be. And it's so, so widespread so that it's, it's not just here and there. It's mostly a rainstorm and a few drops of hail. But this is a continual blasting of, 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 of I guess, heaven's AK-47 just unleashing onto the land of Egypt in this continual smashing of ice bullets from the clouds. Never since it became a nation, it says here, was there ever such a hailstorm. This is, this is a, a, an idiom in the Egyptian language. It's, it's actually what would be said of a dynasty or, or a pharaoh or, or the king as they rose to office. They would say something like, never before in all the land of Egypt have we seen such a king. It was, it was an idiom. It's like a, like a political catchphrase or, or sometimes when they're about to, uh, to uh, 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 go out upon a large, great endeavor, they would tell the people, never before in Egypt nor never will be again such an amazing structure built. You know, and so this is the language that God then adopts and makes fun of Pharaoh. He's saying, I'm using your language and, and it's, like, it's like in modern nomenclature, he might say, uh, uh, make Egypt dust again. You know what I mean? Like he's taking a political uh, idiom and sort of twisting it on its head and, and then twisting its salt in the wounds of, of those that he is afflicting. But nonetheless, we see here God's punishment against Pharaoh because of his sin and his rebellion against God. Look at the, the false repentance that occurs uh, in, uh, in about 27. We, we didn't read this part, but, but in this section, uh, Pharaoh calls in Moses And he says to him, I've sinned. I've sinned this time. Please forgive me. It could be otherwise translated, I have sinned just this one time. Okay, I'll admit the hail, that was me. I did one thing, but I'm a pretty good person generally, right? You ever met those people? I'm a good person. I I made a mistake. I have a condition. I was born this way. I was was raised wrong. It's my parents' fault. It was my trauma. Whatever he says, it, it was just one time. Just one sin, but I'm not a sinner. It's a kind of false repentance that we're being showed that he, that he says to him um, and asks Moses, go and pray, please make the thunder cease. But look at what Moses says in verse 30. He can tell this is false. Pharaoh's played this card a few times before. And in verse 30 he says, but as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. I can tell this is fake. I know what's going to happen. I'm going to go. I'm going to pray. God will stop the hail. Guess what you're going to do? You're not going to let us go. You're going to put the sentries back on the border and tell us to go back into our slave houses. I know how this works. And and there's this, this interesting clue in verse 31 as to how Moses knew that. In verse 31, it says, The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat was in the, and the emma were not struck down, for they were laid in coming up. We, we see the application in our life today, the flax, the emma. You, you, you feel it? What he's saying is, is basically just the, 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 the crops that were, that were more mature and about ready to harvest, they were struck down because they were larger. The, the, the crops which were much smaller and more flexible at that time uh, and, and elastic, I guess, in, their, in, their, in their, uh, their, 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 their integrity, they were able to be crushed and hit and knocked but able to you know, regrow before the full maturity of the plant came. So, so that the flax and the barley was, was struck down and destroyed. Flax is what they make linen with uh, and and, and, but but in other words, Moses is saying, I know that you're false. First of all, I can see it in your, in your beady cobra eyes, Pharaoh. And secondly, he knew. You've still got something left. And I've learned, if I've learned anything, Pharaoh, I've learned that if you have anything left, you will not let us go. I know that you're lying. You still have some crop. You still have a chance. You still have a little bit to bargain with. And so you will not truly repent before God. And I love this. Look at, look at verse 33. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and he stretched his hands to the Lord. What's going on outside? 
Here's Pharaoh inside an enormous stone palace. What's going on outside? An enormous, destructive hailstorm that has never occurred in its likeness before. There is, there is basketballs of ice being plummeted to the earth. And what does Moses do? Doesn't even take an umbrella. This is just mic drop. This is, this is a base Chad move right here. He just walks out, out of the city, no cover, out into the field, and he's just standing there, and this is like a this is like a Metallica video clip. That's what this is. This is this is this is metal. I think is what the kids would say. This is metal. He's standing in the middle of a storm, fire running down to earth all around him. He doesn't care. He stands in the midst of it and he prays to God. And so it comes. Can you imagine being Pharaoh, just watching Moses walk out into the into the sheets of hail that are coming down, bold and stiff, stiff-backed, and marching into it? I I love that that picture. Moses Moses has he has a real spine with what the Lord has given him to do today. So first of all, we've seen why the plagues? Because sin deserves punishment and God is punishing Pharaoh. But we do have another one here. Because of the false repentance, God continues on. But we can ask our second, uh, the second form of the question, why the plagues? And secondly, it is because God is punishing the Egyptians for their idolatry against God, which, which is a direct violation of the first commandment that God graves into the human heart and wrote into the, the Ten Commandments soon to be received, which is that do not worship any God other than the one true God. Don't worship a pantheon. We, we looked a couple of weeks back at how Romans 1 and Acts chapter 17 show us that this is the height of folly, to think that there can be multiple grounds of all being to think that there can be multiple gods and that God any other than the God, the triune God of Scripture, is in fact folly, not just based on Scripture, but also based on the reality of the world that we see. They were, they were guilty. Make no mistake. Idolaters are guilty for their failure to worship the one true God. And God is pouring out his punishment on them as well. <clears throat> it's as if he's saying, you worship these false gods against reason, against your conscience, and against my, my prophet, because of what you can get out of it. They give you the free sex. They give you the, the, the crops. They give you the freedom that you want to sin, and you still get out of it what you want of this religion. Well, this is what you get out of it. You get the judgment of the one true God, a living, a jealous God. That is what you get. And so they receive punishment. We see, look at verse 20 and 21. We see them, first of all, starting to feel the punishment and start losing faith in their gods. Back with the frogs and the flies, they had started to feel that, that this is really God. This guy means business. Our gods are unable to help us in this, in, in this juncture. And in this section, with the hail plague, we actually see in verse 20 and 21 that many of Moses' servants hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses, verse 21, but whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. There was, there's a sense that, okay, now we're getting, we've seen God, sort of God throw down the test. And, and they've shown with their action, they've voted with their feet. I think that Moses, uh, Pharaoh probably wouldn't have told, wouldn't have passed on this message about the hail to anybody. And maybe there was a bit of a council meeting where they all drew straws saying, who's going to tell Pharaoh that he has to let us go and tell our people that if they want to, want to make good on the refuge and stay inside, they can, uh, uh, even if Pharaoh doesn't care that much. And some of them must have told Pharaoh, please let us tell them this. Please let us go and at least look up. You don't have to fear. You don't have to fear the word of the Lord. But some of us do, and some of them did, and some of them told their servants and along the grapevine it went some people saved their flock and their slaves and their family and themselves others did not they were they were losing faith in their gods and secondly we also see that in their punishment against the in God's punishment against the Egyptians idolatry God gives no compromise God is look at look at chapter 10 verse 11 as the locusts come, God has this interaction through Moses with Pharaoh where you can see that, that Mo Pharaoh is trying to keep alive some semblance of the Egyptian religion and giving Yahweh just a sliver of his re religion. 
if Moses allowed this negotiation that, that Pharaoh puts forward, if Yahweh allowed Moses to accept this negotiation, he would be admitting the validity of the other gods and the fact that he only has a sliver of a stake of worship to claim. And so in this interaction, we see Pharaoh try and keep alive his religion and Moses give no compromise because God is in this moment, what he's precisely doing is punishing you for your idolatry. So he's not going to give you wiggle room on your idolatry and allow you to, to, to take away from some of the worship to God. Here's what it looks like, is that as the locusts come and they start to eat everything that the hail uh, sorry, sorry, no, before the locusts come. As Moses declares this, this, uh, the, this plague to come, saying that the locusts will come and destroy everything. Look at verse 7. Again, Moses' counselors are getting, are getting a bit of guts about them. In verse 7 they say, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let them go. Pharaoh, please. Please, Pharaoh, let them go that they may serve the Lord their God. Don't you understand that Egypt is ruined? This is like, remember in history, with all those photographs of Stalin, all of his advisors early on in his council, and then a few years later, one less counselor, and then a few years later, it's just him in the boardroom. Why? Because when you question a despot, when you suggest that his plans of a, of a tyrant are, are failing... You happen to fall into the Nile from a great height and puncture yourself 37 times in the chest accidentally. That's just what happens to happen. Somebody here gets the guts, the servants together, Pharaoh, you're losing. Get rid of this guy. And Pharaoh doesn't allow it. Look in, uh, in verse, um, uh, uh, verse uh, 10. The Lord be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, only the men among you shall go and serve the Lord. That's, that's what you said originally. Moses, Moses has been called back in after he leaves. Called back in, comes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, fine, you can go, but how many of you want to go? He says, all of us, my, our kids, our, our women, our old, our young, everybody. And he says, no, 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 just the men. Leave your women and children here as hostages, right? That's what he's asking. He's like, no, you go worship, do, do like the Egyptians do. Just the men worship. That's all the gods care about, right? Who do he make more muscly? Obviously the men. We, madam, all leave you women and children, the slaves or the families here, and it doesn't matter. And here's Moses. If, if you're familiar with the Exodus account, if you're familiar with the Jewish religion, the way that God demands worship is a family worship. God doesn't just consider men as those that he wants worship from, but demands that the, the women are in the congregation, that the children are being raised up. God was not going to accept worship merely from the men. He wanted all of them. He wanted the families to call upon him. He wanted the fathers teaching the children. He wanted the grandfathers with the granddaughters. This is, this is how it worked. Pharaoh wanted God to get worship just from the men and then come back. But God would not allow it, and so neither does, Pharaoh, does Moses uh, uh, and so uh, Moses simply leaves. Look at the end of verse 11. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. I'm not, I'm not compromising or budging anymore, Moses. That's your rule. Go out and have your worship. And what's the next thing that happens to Pharaoh? He sees the cloud of locusts coming upon his people. God didn't budge. God was punishing them for their idolatry. When he tried to, to siphon and leverage more idolatry and worship away from the true God, God didn't budge. He sent his plague with punishment and severity. And thirdly, the punishment of the worshippers, the punishment to the Egyptians was seeing their gods overpowered. We've looked at this a, a few times in a few different ways, but, but part of the, the, the punishment for worshipping false gods was that they would suffer and die and all those sorts of things. A part of the unique punishment was that they would see their own gods who they worshipped embarrassed before them. They, they would lose their faith. They would see their own gods fail. And, and this is what happens. Uh, with the hail... Consider the idolatry of the Egyptians that they're being punished for. In, the, in the, uh, the plague of the hail, they see torn down the god of, of Shu, who is the goddess of the atmosphere who held up the sky. And Moses says that the sky runs down to the earth in the storm, in fire and hail and wind. Or, or the goddess Nut, who is the god of the sky, or the goddess Tefnut, the goddess of moisture and precipitation, or the god Seth, 
who inhabited the wind and the storm. Their own sphere of authority, so-called, is being tipped on its head on top of their own worshippers. This is the punishment of God to the idolaters. Or with the, with the locusts, we see the effect of it in verse 14 and 15 of chapter 10. They came over the whole land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever would be again. Verse 15. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened and they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Even your little succulents that you leave on your windowsills, ladies. Even those, everything, not a green thing. It became a brown, grey landscape as this black swarm of locusts tore through and ate all of it. There is a, the largest recorded swarm of locusts at least in recent history, in the last couple of hundred years, measured the distance of 2,300 square kilometers. That's here to the Gold Coast, equally as wide down into the West Corridor as well. That's a square with each dimension being the length of here to the Gold Coast, covered in locusts. One locust eats its own body weight in a single day. Now, doesn't seem like a lot. Locusts are tiny. However, in one of the largest recorded uh, uh, locust swarms that happened in North Africa in, uh, in the recent uh, centuries, it was counted to contain up to 192 billion locusts. 192 billion. Th that number doesn't make sense to minds like ours. You cannot comprehend the amount of locusts, which means... In one day, that swarm, one day, that swarm eats as much as 90 million human beings. One day. That's the equivalent of a swarm eating the same amount as three and a half Australias every single day. That's unimaginable. These, are, these have been spoken by some as being nature's worst pest. They entirely decimate nations, destroy economies, and eat alive entire crops of people so that there is famines and pestilence and destroyed economies for decades after these things strike. This is an act of God in even the ordinary locust swarm, but here is a swarm so large that it eats every living thing left in Egypt by way of crops and plants. It is so dense, and this is God's punishment. This is God's punishment against the Egyptians for worshipping men, the God of the crops and the harvest. This is hilarious. At that time of year, which is about early April, that's us, at about March, early April, is the harvest to men. The, the, sorry, the, the festival, the, the harvest and men festival. This is like God sending... I, I, I don't know, sending a, a sandstorm in the middle of a, I'm trying to think of something, in the, in the middle of a, 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 a parade that we might have in, have in Brisbane. He sends this destructive force right on top of their festival. They're all getting their makeup on. They're all setting their, their tents. They're all, they're all getting the floats out to do the march. And then God sends the, the plague right on top of them in their festival. This is a punishment against them for worshipping Isis, the goddess who wove the flax crop into linen. This is a punishment against them for worshipping Nepri, the god of grain, Anubis, the protector of the fields, and Senehem, the protector against the pets, the pests, the pets, the pests, the pest-keeping god, the pest-control god. They, they tried to worship him and God punished them by sending locusts so dense that it destroyed everything. Those demonic beings have brought welfare and riches and prominence to many nations including Egypt in this situation. But it has come at a cost. And the cost is that God strikes down those worshippers with his wrath and with his rage. And so, so far we've seen the hails poured down to punish Pharaoh. Uh, we've seen the, 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 the plagues as they come against the people as punishment for worshipping the false gods. Thirdly, we see that in the midst of these punishments, God is putting to open shame the Egyptian gods so that Jew and Gentile would know there's only one God. 
He's punishing Pharaoh, he's punishing the Egyptians, and he's damaging the reputation of the false gods so that he is known as the only one God. We see this. Look at chapter 9, verse 14. God explicitly says this. He says, This time I will send all my plagues on you and your heart and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Stop thinking of me as one of the others of your gods, is what he's saying. Or look at verse 29 of chapter 9. Moses said to him, I'll go, I'll pray. I'll pray that the hail stops. As soon as I've gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease, there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. This planet, this universe belongs to Yahweh. That is part of the purposes of, the, of these plagues as they happen. They are, they, are a, they are an act of God aiming against the false gods. That, part of the proof of this is in chapter 9, verse uh, 13 and 14. Where, in verse 14 when he says, I will send my plagues on your heart. We might sound like God's just getting personal and shoving his finger in Pharaoh's chest. Actually, Pharaoh's heart was one of the most important divine attributes of the pantheon of Egyptian gods. They called it the ma'at, M-A apostrophe A-T, at least in the English. Pharaoh's heart was endued and empowered and, 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 and consecrated as the seat of all order and peace and safety and social balance. The world of the gods, in some measure, relied upon the peace of Pharaoh's ma'at. The, the underworld of gods and, and, and the dead relied on the peace and the security of Pharaoh's ma'at. The political landscape, the wars that they won, the, the economical thriving relied on Pharaoh's ma'at. He kind of sounds like a World Economical, Economical Forum or, or United Nations person at this point. Here was his job, control the climate, manage the seasons, control the mood of people, <laughs> look after the weather. All of this was a part of his own job so that he could control the world and keep it in a peaceful order and hold chaos at bay. Here's what God's doing. He's stepping into Pharaoh's office, and in fact, he's, he's toppling the, 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 the idols of Pharaoh. He's, he, he's tearing up. This, this would be kind of like when God says, I am sending plagues against your heart, this would be like being in Hinduism if somebody was to say, uh, I am sending uh, adversity against your chakras, right? Like, like, like in that, that thing within you that, that you think controls all, that is so permeated, that thing is now being punished. God is here destroying and taking personal adversity against these false gods. And, and of course, we also see this in today's third plague. Look at verse 21 of chapter 10. The third plague that God strikes against Pharaoh is Pharaoh, uh, uh, Moses goes out from his midst and, and he sends the locust plague. And, and then uh, 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 again, uh, Pharaoh, <coughs> um, uh, Pharaoh pleaded with Moses and so the Lord stopped the locusts and then Pharaoh hardened his heart again. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh and then without announcement this time. Without warning and without a possibility of refuge, Pharaoh just thinks the, the locusts are gone. They're, they're, they're trying to portion out the, 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 the stockade, the, 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 the stores of crops that they have left that were, that were brought in before this harvest. Remember, if it's harvest time, then last harvest stores are now at their bare minimum. So now they're trying to apportion it out and do all of the rationing. And isn't this very ironic? Why were the Jews in Egypt in the first place? because a Jew became prime minister and told them how to store all of their crops and save them from famine. And now they have a God-inflicted famine upon them again, and they're, and they're weighing out their single grains, one for the child, one for the servant, one for me, and they're rationing. And in the midst of that rationing, without warning, God sends Moses, God sends Moses to cast a darkness over the face of the land. Then the Lord said to Moses, verse 21, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. This is not just an eclipse. This is not just that there would be no natural light. This, I believe, is the kind that there would not even be the possibility of flames giving light. 
Uh, I think that this was a removal of, of to, the, to the scientific, the removal of photons from the land of Egypt. There would be, there would be no light possible. It was pitch darkness. It says that nobody left their place. How can you? In the ancient world, not at all for us today. We have no recollection of how dangerous the dark is anymore. We have, we have when they work, we have streetlights, we have torches, we have, we have lights on our phone, we have continual house lights. There is just not really a concept as it was in the ancient world that when the sun goes down, you are in darkness. And, and it's so unsafe. You can't travel because you don't have, have high beam headlights. The, the only people who travel and, and, and act out of their homes at night are the, are, the, are the sinners, those who are trying to be hidden. And so it's dangerous outside. Only if there's a near full moon and a cloudless sky, which is semi-rare, uh, would it ever be safe to really be able to see outside. It was a dangerous thing. And, and here they have darkness. To the ancient mind, this was a symbol of chaos, disorder, a lack of peace. Death was consuming their entire land when it came upon them. I, it says here that it is a darkness to be felt. There is, in fact, uh, a psychological understandings in our day of the effect of darkness upon people. The, when, when there is total darkness, not just, not just the lights are down a little bit too low at church for your likeness and you feel like a Pentecostal might get too happy. It's, it's, it's not like that. We're talking pitch, absolute Darkness, the lack of light, it has sensory deprivation effects. So that you, all of your, your other senses are heightened, which causes an anxiety within your heart of being on alert, and yet the utter inability to even see a thing. It has a, a, a psychotic effect on people, and so as to bring disorientation. Sometimes it can be used by some hippies as therapy who go down into caves and sit there for months at a time with a small light source if needed to reset spiritual chakras and things. I agree they need to be reset. I don't know how, how that's helping, though. And other times it's used as torture. When I was uh, 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 younger, I was in America with, on, a, on a family trip, and we went into uh, near the Grand Canyon. There were these caverns that you could go and visit. Now, my mother is extremely claustrophobic after being locked in Ned Kelly's uh, jail cell when she was a child by her older brother. Older brothers just rock. The best pranks the best jokes. Anyway, so she now has debilitating claustrophobia. Hilarious. And we went into the caverns because she's like, it must be like the Grand Canyon. So we get into this, into this room and then into this lift and then these rackety, richety little cage shuts. No protection really around. And we just drop in like a lift built in 1420 down into the middle of the earth and it just keeps going. And this, it looks exactly as you'd imagine. This huge, southern, bearded, slinging a shotgun on his back guy starts telling us how deep we're going down. He says, if you went all the way up in the Empire State Building, flipped it on its head, that's how deep we're going. <laughs> my mom's shaking. So what do me and my brother do? We start, you know, <laughs> giving it the bounce. Uh, anyway, we, we get down there, and she's clinging onto the lift so that she can stay near the light. And he did this activity. He brought us all out into the cavern. He said, there's no natural light down here. Feel the effects of this darkness. We went around the corner so that my mom could stay near the light. We went around the corner into this dark, and he turned off the torch. And within a few seconds... It was hard to know where your hands... I, I kept testing. You know, your, your eyes start, start uh, getting used to the darkness and then you can see there was none of that. It's as if the brain starts to worry that why are my eyes not, not refocusing, not adjusting. And I could not see my hand in front of my face. In fact, at some point it felt difficult to know where your limbs were. You'd have to like make sure, am I actually standing here or am I, am I floating? And at some point it, it felt as if I was standing on a complete angle and somebody fell over just standing there because of the disorientation. He says that this, this was able to drive people absolutely insane and, and, and a dizziness comes upon people, a spinning head. It is, it is psychological dangerous for people to be in absolute darkness. Psychologists say that at this time, you have less, when there is extended darkness, you have less serotonin, which is the feel-good hormone, and more melatonin, which is the sleep hormone. Where at the same time, your body is in a constant state of heightened anxiety and your internal clock is warped. There were studies done where people were put in absolute darkness for a month to see the effects. They, were, they kept in contact. And, and at the time that they released these people and brought them out, they thought it was still day two or three. 
Other people felt that they had been there for a month within the first few hours. This, this clock of, on the inside of us that relies on the natural darkness and lightness of the day is warped and, and thrown out. And this is the darkness to be felt. Can you imagine the young children, the parents, the grandchildren, the feeble, just being now without any food? Much of your water sources are still, are still the blood that was turned back in the first plague. Now, now with the harvest time, with nothing to eat, you're sitting without fire in a house and no one left their place for three straight days. They weren't told it was going to be three days. They were simply sitting in an undisclosed time of darkness, suffering. And of course, this was highly spiritual. The, the Egyptians worshipped Horus, the god of the sunrise. They worshipped Aten, the god of the midday sun. And they worshipped Atum, the god of the sunset. They're, they're really getting, getting running short on things to worship. They have three different sun gods. Plus Amun-Re, who is the, the supreme deity. And Ra, the sun god. This is how, what they thought. Every day, Ra resurrected into life. And he began to give life to the world through the, through the sunrise and in his sailing in his canoe across the sky. And then he dies. Every day he dies. But the hope of all human beings is that Ra will rise again tomorrow. And so he rises at sunrise and gives us life again. And this is assurance that as long as Ra lives, there will be the cycle of normalcy in our universe. But not today. God, God kept Ra down. God was standing on his throat and not letting him rise up in the Egyptian mindset. God was sending such a judgment against these gods and against Egypt that would never be felt in such a way again. These gods are as good as defending people as your auntie's gemstones and your Himalayan crystal salt. That, that's how good it is. It's like being in an earthquake, your roof falling and praying to your crystal salt. Cross your fingers. <laughs> I've got my gemstone on. What good is that? This is precisely what is going on in the Egyptian landscape as God, God makes utterly futile all, all of the faith that they once had in their gods. But look at a, this final purpose as we, as we draw near to a close. The final purpose of these plagues is that there would be a futuristic, evangelistic purposes. Look at chapter 9, verse 16. God says explicitly, for this purpose, I have raised you up. Right? Why doesn't God just clocked off Pharaoh now? Why doesn't he just remove his head from his shoulder? No, no, no. God has raised him up and keeps him on that pedestal amidst the plagues. For this pur purpose, I have raised you up to show my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. It wasn't enough that the Jews knew. It wasn't enough that Moses knew. He wanted Egypt to know. And then he wanted the Philistines to hear about it. And then he wanted the Amorites and the Canaanites to shake in their boots when they heard the word Yahweh, when they heard of the Israelites. He wanted everybody to know what that meant. In Joshua 2, verse 11, the, 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 the Gibeonites speak to... Um, I'm sorry, no, this is uh, Rahab. She says in Canaan, in Jericho, she says... As soon as we heard that Yahweh was coming and all the things that he did in Egypt, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any of the men because of you. For the Lord your God is God. He, uh, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. God was achieving this purpose. The nations would hear who Yahweh truly is. In Joshua 9 verse 9, the Gimeonites come up to, to, to the Israelites and try and hash out a deal because they say, we heard everything your God did in Egypt. We don't want a part of that. In 1 Samuel 4, the Philistines cry out saying, the plagues that fell on Egypt are now falling upon us too. God achieved this purpose. It became a proverb what God did to Egypt. So that in all the land, so that in all of the world, God would know, uh, the people would know that there is only one God. Isn't that, isn't that an interesting, in all the world, they would know the slave's God, he's one to be feared. The slave's God is the real God. Isn't it amazing that now, even now, God has done such an act in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that the whole world now knows. There's, there's people to hear, there's people groups to permeate, and yet the whole globe now knows the carpenter Jesus, the carpenter man. He's the, he's the real God. He's the one to be feared. He's the one whose people give up their lives in death to proclaim his name. God has done such a great act so as to exalt Jesus, so that his name may be proclaimed in all the earth. There's another one. Look at chapter 10, verse 2. 
God says to Moses, I'm doing these signs so that you may tell in the hearing of your son and your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I've done among them that you may know that I am the Lord. And so this multi-generational purpose becomes that, that now after you have seen my works, you tell your children and they tell their children and you tell their children. Let the story continue to go throughout all of the people of Israel that God is the only God and his name to be proclaimed throughout all the earth and in every generation. This is our, this is our task, to tell the children and our grandchildren around the campfire. Don't let Veggie Tales do it for you. You tell the cool stories. I love going camping with the cousins and the nephews and the children. Tell the cool stories. I told my, my boys around a campfire in our backyard last night the story of the pillar of fire from heaven to earth. And Arthur wanted to light everything else on fire to make it look more realistic. I, I need to be careful with what stories I tell. <clears throat> but but, but we, want to, we want to fill into their hearts the reality of our saving God and his glorious story and the part that they play in it. In other words, God sent, God sent the plagues. God did all of this in Egypt as, as we wrap up for this very purpose. You're living in the reason why God did it. So that people from all generations and, and lands and nations and backgrounds can come into the hearing of these words and know for sure there is only one God. There is only one judge, Jesus Christ, his son. There is only one chance of salvation, his death and resurrection. There is only one true people of God. The, not the Israel in the land of Goshen now or in Israel, but, but the church of God, Jew and Gentile, black and white, Asian and brown, all in one people of God. There is only one God who created, who judges who saves and who will come back in the future. There is only one God, and that is why God was, was permeating the story with his power. There was, there was a story of a, of a pastor, an evangelist, a revivalist in the, in the 1600s. I believe it was 1630, if my memory serves me correctly. And, 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 and as we close out and we remember this morning that not only in the hail did God command that people flee to refuge to escape the wrath, but also in Jesus, we have a refuge that God commands us to flee to, to escape his wrathful punishment. John Livingston was preaching, and, and he was preaching this, this, this sermon that he almost ran away from because of his nerves. And, and as he preached for an hour, the, the rain started to fall heavily on top of this people. And listen to what he said to them. They, they start to put their jackets and their hats on top of their heads to save themselves. And he says, if a few drops of rain so discompose you, how decomposed would you be? How full of horror and despair if God should deal with you as you deserve? And thus he will deal with all the finally unrepentant. God might just ra justly rain fire and brimstone upon you as he did with Sodom and Gomorrah and the other cities of the plain. But, but... Forever blessed be his name. The door of mercy stands open for such as you are. Such as you are right now. Not such as you may be cleaned up a bit. Not such as you might be if you go to church a bit more. Such as you are right now, sinner. The door of mercy in Jesus is standing open. The Lord Jesus Christ came into our nature, obeyed the law against which we wickedly and willfully broke. He suffered our punishment so that we, have, that we so richly deserved. And he has now become a refuge from the storm and a cover from the tempest of divine wrath due for our sin. His merits alone are the defense from that storm. And none but those who come to Christ just as they are will have the benefit of his shelter. Jesus will one day run, rain down the wrath deserved for our sin. He will one day pour out the punishment that we all deserve. And my question for you is, not so much a question, but a command. Flee to the refuge, to the house of safety, to Jesus Christ who died for your sin, who drank that wrath, who propitiated God's anger, who, who stood under the storm and received every hailstone of God's anger for your sin. And he now stands open that you might find safety in him. Simply run to him, sinful as you are, dirty as you are. Find rest and refuge in his arms, for he is the one God, the one creator, the one savior, the only one dead and risen from the dead, the only Lord, the only judge who is coming back to judge every one of us. Be found in him, ladies and gentlemen. Let's pray.
God, we praise you. We praise you because of the glory of the power of your judgment. How difficult it is even to utter those words. That we praise you for your judgment. We, 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 we want mercy. We, we feel the, the tug of fairness at our hearts. But Lord God, if, if we are to be biblical Christians, we will stand with the psalmists and, the, and cry out that you are worthy because of your judgment. It is a part of your glory that you judge the sinner. And yet, Lord God, how great and and wonderful it is to also know that part of your glory, the, the focus of your glory is how gracious you are to your enemies. That you not only command uh, a refuge, not only do you allow a refuge and, 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 and supply a refuge, but you have taken those of us who are your enemies and you have placed us into the rock of ages, Jesus Christ. You have given to us his safety, his roof, his refuge so that your wrath will no longer ever touch us for he has drunk it all at the cross of Calvary. We thank you, Lord God. And we pray that in this day, souls would believe on that and never seek to be like Pharaoh or the, or the fools of Egypt who stood out in the field with no protection and were pulverized by your hailstones in anger. No, God, would you give everyone this morning who does not trust in Jesus a heart of faith to run to him, to be rescued and to be saved from their sin. Father God, would you glorify your name in our midst and to the ends of the earth that the name of Yahweh would be proclaimed as the one true God, the one true creator, the sustainer, the savior, and the only judge of the living and the dead. May you receive glory in our midst this morning. And everybody said, amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.